on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here flying solo today, at least for the intro bit. Uh, Sally's, as they say, on assignment and will hopefully join us Again, for a preamble in the next couple of weeks. Hey, if you like the podcast, just putting it out there, would love you to give us a review and rate us on your favourite platform, whether it's Apple Podcasts, whatever. Helps people find the show and uh, boosts it up the charts a little bit so it's got a bit more visibility. We'd love you if you've been with us on the journey this year to just give us a review, a rating, whatever, uh, and help other people find the inspiration and the information. Okay, enough of the hard sell. Today, we're talking about journalism and uh, the state that it's in in 2021. Marcus Strom is the soon-to-retire president of the MEAA, the Immediate Entertainment Arts Alliance, the peak union for journalists across Australia. And over the last few years, he has been very, very busy because journalism has never been under more pressure. Whether it has been those now infamous raids by the AFP, the Australian Federal Police on the ABC and Annika Smethurst's house in Canberra, whether it's been about the closure of multiple media organisations across the country, particularly in regional and rural areas, which has seen media diversity and information uh, shrink for a huge uh, proportion of the Australian population. Whether it is about misinformation and the proliferation of lies and uh, propaganda as news, which challenges the validity of journalism in a way that's not really healthy for our democracy. All of these things have been on the agenda while Marcus has been president of the MEAA. So we thought before he exits the building, he's still going to be involved in the union, but before he exits the chair as the president of the MEAA, we get him in for a chat, and here he is, Marcus Strom. Sally, as we get to the back end of 2021, questions around news coverage, the integrity of journalism, the safety of journalists. We've seen numerous examples both here in Australia and overseas where that's becoming a huge issue. And the independence of media are all very much in the focus. I know you're heavily involved in all that because of the campaign that you're currently running for a Royal Commission into the Murdoch media empire. So this is uh, very close to your heart, this next conversation. Yeah, it is. I think, and many of our listeners would almost certainly agree that a media that is, you know, well-resourced and completely independent and made up of, you know, diverse publications and fearless journalists who are able to investigate without fear of prosecution and report the truth without political interference is just so essential for a functioning democracy and and a, you know, flourishing society. And I think that, yeah, sometimes people don't really necessarily think about the media and the news as those who work in the media call it the fourth estate, meaning that it's like the fourth part of what makes a society work. So yeah, it's so important. It just touches everything that I care about. (laughs) And me as well. Both of us have worked in that environment and it's a really important vocation and a job that uh, we both uh, have had experience of and value quite highly. And when it's done at its very best, it changes and transforms society. It pushes change and progress 
along more quickly than it otherwise would. It shines a light in dark areas that would rather not be discussed. It represents the power of the public interest over self-interest. All of those things are incumbent in a free, fair and uh, a vigorously defended journalism and media environment. One person who's been committed to that in his uh, career is Marcus Strom, who is the retiring president of the MEAA, the Media Entertainment Arts Alliance, which is the umbrella union for, for media professionals, for artists, and Marcus is joining us as a, a bit of a valedictory on his way out. Marcus, how are you going? G'day. Hi, Francis. Hi, Sally. Yeah, I'm going well. I'm not retiring, by the way. I'm still cracking on. I'm just stepping down as president. I'm, gonna, I'm standing for election for New South Wales Vice President of the Union, so I'll still be campaigning for press freedom and higher wages for journalists. So when we invited you on the show and Francis and I were like, oh, I wonder if he's going to like do one of those, you know, when you leave a job and you're like, right, here's who's not doing the dishes or like, I've got a bone to pick. So it's it's not that kind of chat, just so we're clear. <laughs> no, but you know, I've, I've never really been one to pull my punches anyway. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't think that makes too much difference. Marcus, it's been a really tough time for everybody, uh, professionals in jobs of all sorts, but journalism in particular, enormous pressure has been brought to bear on the very simple notion of what's true, what's real, what's news and what's fake news. For, for your members and for people working in the profession, how much of a personal toll has this taken on them? It's actually been a huge toll on our members and non-members in the, in the media industry uh, we did a survey not long ago which looked at the response of our members as to how often they felt threatened in their jobs. It was a huge percentage. I think about a quarter of all journalists said that while covering an event, they had been physically intimidated. That's a quarter of all journalists over their entire wow. career. And if you go and cover a demonstration or you stand outside a court or you cover an arrest, you're doing something pretty day-to-day. I mean, that's setting aside those members of ours who go into conflict zones either in Australia or overseas. There is a huge physical pressure. Journalists take, well, not quite combat training, but extreme environment training is something that a lot of journalists do. I did extreme environment training when I was Deputy Foreign Editor at the Herald, Sydney Morning Herald, and it's to make sure that journalists are prepared to deal with some quite extreme environments, which we have to do through our careers. Why do you think that the presence of journalists or journalists doing their jobs, why, why do you think that can evoke such a strong reaction from some people? I mean, if you go back to some of the demonstrations around when Trump was president in the US and we saw those shocking images of Australian news crews being attacked by police. So it's not just demonstrators, it's also uh, police who can also uh, present a danger to our to our members. Or just this week, uh, Nick McCallum in Melbourne covering a demonstration was accosted and forced off a scene. So I think for a lot of the demonstrators who are activated by COVID or the extreme fringes of the far right or the QAnon phenomena, I think a lot of this comes from a deep feeling of disempowerment in society. They are alienated from power in society and unfortunately they've come to conclusions that are anti-democratic or semi-fascist 
And they see the media and its representatives in front of them, journalists, our members, as representations of power. And I think they just take out their frustrations uh, about what's going on in society on journalists who, I mean, they're effectively um, trying to shoot the messenger about what's going on in society. The phrase mainstream media sounds benign, but it's actually weaponized as a comment of disdain of association with the media being in league with powerful elites, isn't it? That's what the basic premise of yeah. that is. I mean, it, it is a bit of a pathetic slur thrown around, I think. A number of times someone will have tweeted at me or, why isn't the mainstream media covering this? And then they'll have a link to a story in the mainstream media. <laughs> and it's like, well... Look, I think the internet has been, a, in general, still a positive change in the way news media is delivered to people. It's democratised elements of it. More people can access it. You can set up your own podcast. You can set up your own news site quite easily. But it doesn't replace the huge amounts of resources required to run a real newsroom that can get to the bottom of stories, that can pursue things so the role of the so-called mainstream media is not going away. A lot of stories circulating on Facebook or other social media originate in some fairly traditional large newsrooms still. So without the, the mainstream media, we would be living in a news darkness, I think. Yeah, and I think there has been a lot said recently um, about the sort of like quite drastic decline in trust Yes, in institutions, but also in facts, right? We're living in this sort of post-truth world. And I think when people see, you know, stories in the press that don't reflect their very genuinely held version of the truth, it can feel like there's a giant conspiracy, right? And so journalists who are just trying to, you know, for the the most part, the vast majority of journalists, even those journalists working at News Corp, I mean, and of course, you know, the majority of journalists working at News Corp are like committed to reporting the truth and doing their job with ethics and professionalism. I think it's so worrying that there has been a rise in sort of like physical attacks, but also just harassment of journalists. It's really extraordinary being on Twitter and seeing particularly female journalists and the harassment they receive. It's really worrying. I think we do live in an environment of um, not choose your own adventure, but choose your own facts uh, to fit. And the, the internet and news information online does allow people to choose so-called facts or uh, that fit their pre-existing prejudices. Uh, but I think that this becomes tainted with uh, violence uh, or threats of violence. People become like a Mike Tyson behind the keyboard. They try and hide what they think is anonymity and they throw threats around. And, yes, you're absolutely right. This, these weaponized threats have a strong gender bias and uh, women are attacked constantly online. It's a huge problem that we're aware of and we, we work with uh, employers to try and ensure that this is an industrial issue. It's not It's not just something that hit, happens on the internet, but we want employers to take it seriously and to protect the workplace safe of our members because they need to be online for their jobs. News Corp journalists are some of the best journalists in the country. News Corp is the workplace of possibly the largest or second largest area of unionised journalists in the country. 
we've got hundreds and hundreds of unionised journalists working at News Corp titles across um, Australia. And um, they're very active in protecting their wages, conditions and um, their rights at work. Yeah, that's right. Can I ask you, Marcus, about another area where journalists need to be protected so they can do their job, and that is their ability to protect their sources in order for the public interest to be served by whistleblowers, people who are have knowledge of uh, transgressions or corruption or behaviour which betrays the public trust and should be exposed. Now, there's a situation in Queensland at the moment before the courts, and we're seeing this increasing happen where journalists are brought before the courts and being forced to uh, expose or reveal their sources. The case of Journalist F in Queensland, who's facing uh, charges or the possibility of, of being uh, prosecuted for protecting some a source, tell us the background of that story and how it's come to it being in front of a court once again where a journalist has to uh, defend the very basic principle of doing their job in the public interest. So Journalist F is a case called as a witness in Queensland Corruption Commission to try and seek seek the leak of information or alleged leak of information given to a journalist about an arrest event in a murder case in 2018. And the Corruption Commission called Journalist F as a witness we're not allowed to name the journalists. We're not actually allowed to name the publication or news organisation they work for. I think we can just say they work for a TV news agency based in Queensland. We're not allowed to say what the arrest was to do with. All this is done in secrecy to try and hunt down an alleged leak of information. And journalist F has been ordered by the Corruption Commission to reveal their source. They are refusing to do so because that's our ethics outline that once a confidence is given to a source, a journalist should never give that confidence away under any circumstances whatsoever. And Journalist F is sticking to that uh, and is facing um, jail time if they don't. Now, Queensland is an outlier in Australia because there's no shield law in Queensland. Queensland government in two elections has promised to bring them in. This week they've just tabled some legislation for the shield law, but it's too late for Journalist F. And actually the framing of this shield law probably wouldn't even cover this case anyway because it doesn't deal with evidence given to the Corruption Commission in Queensland. They are excluded from this shield law, so it's not a universal shield law. Hey, Marcus, can I ask some questions about this case? And I I ask them in complete good faith, although it might sound like I'm playing devil's advocate. When I read the details of this case, there were some elements of it that reminded me of when somebody from Michaelia Cash's office allegedly tipped off the media when the police were doing a raid on the union building in in Sydney, 2017. And obviously that was a huge ordeal because, well, for a variety of reasons, but the sort of the nub of it was, A, that staffers shouldn't be wording up journalists about police raids full stop, and B, like, you know, like it could have botched the investigation. I should be really clear that that investigation was botched from the outset because it was completely politically motivated. Like it was a, it was a real disgrace. But in any case, like that, so that instance of the staffer allegedly leaking to the media, is that similar? And 
or, or not well, similar? In one sense, and, it, is sim- in one sense yeah. it is similar. A journalist receives a piece of information that is newsworthy and then they report on it. Um, yeah. I think the federal police raiding a union is newsworthy. Yeah. Somebody being arrested for murder is newsworthy. And if a journalist gets information on that, they're going to report on it. And that's, yeah. that's what journalists do. We, we report on things. And those journalists in both situations should not face court, should not face prison time for receiving that information. Now, you can argue the merits and the motivations behind the leaking of that information. That's a different argument. What we're talking about is should journalists in their workplace face court time for doing their job, which is reporting on information they receive that is in that is in the public interest and that is newsworthy. And both, I think mm. both those circumstances, uh, a police raiding a union office is reporting it is in the public interest and newsworthy, and uh, and a murder arrest. Now, the investigations as to what the motivations needs to happen at the other end, not not at the journalist end. Yeah, and I suppose the inverse on both of these situations is, to put it very simply, it's like a journalist receives some information but chooses not to report it and, like, that's an issue too, right? Yeah, that happens all the time. I mean, jur- journalists get bombarded with information and most of it they choose not to report on for various reasons. Yeah, of course, like journalists obviously use their discretion, but if, you know, you could go all the way the other end, journalists shouldn't face consequence or jail time for reporting the information they have because the alternative could be, if you take it to the extreme, that a journalist is covering something up, which, you know, is not the job of a journalist. Yeah, that's true. So that's the similarity in both those circumstances. Now, the the situation with, with journalist F, is what we think there needs to be is uniform shield laws in Australia. They don't exist. That where the journalist wants giving um, confidence when they're reporting, that needs to be a, a privileged piece of information uh, in all jurisdictions in Australia. It is only such in three that we're aware of. It's not privileged. Well, it's got some privilege in, in others and it'll have a, some privileges as information in, in Queensland. There needs to be a uniform national shield law that makes it clear that our members can do their job without fear of going to jail. And also that whistleblowers can feel confident if they're doing what their conscience tells them to do in the public interest. They should be able to do that without fear of uh, prosecution, jail or consequences usually meted out by the, the people who they are in fact uh, revealing to have been involved in nefarious behaviour. So that's a really key component to the, the functioning of a democracy is the ability for whistleblowers to shine uh, light on in dark areas. Marcus, as an extension of that, we we had the raid on the ABC and Anika Schmidthurst as well. So are, we, are you feeling that journalists are increasingly seeing government and uh, the executive branch testing the boundaries of of the, the right for journalists to report fearlessly and frankly? Yeah, so Australia has dropped in the um, rankings of press freedom over the last few years. The major incident that led to that were the police AFP raids on the ABC and Annika Smethurst's house in Canberra. And this is in a post-2001 September 11 environment where I think last count in Australia, there are more than 80, I think 82 pieces of anti-terror legislation have come in. And a lot of them concern the control of information, increasingly making government 
uh, secret government operations increasingly secret under the under the guise of national security this has happened under labor and liberal uh, governments and you tend to find oppositions won't raise the civil liberties issue for being accused of being weak on on national security and this has been a ramping up of laws in australia that mean that the security services and the police feel that they can clamp down on the flow of information that holds them to account such as witness K. Bernard Collery facing jail time for exposing uh, Australia spying on East Timor illegally against international law. It's 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 got parallels with the uh, the ongoing witch hunt against our member Julian Assange, who is also facing jail for exposing war crimes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think that the in Australia and internationally there is a, a pursuit of the media in order to clamp down on information. Can you tell us a little bit about your read on what's going on between the Morrison government and the ABC at the moment? You know, in particular, I think many people are pretty alarmed by um, standing up a Senate inquiry into the ABC complaints process, despite the fact that the ABC, that you know, that's completely within the ABC's remit. Um you know, and they're already looking into their complaints system. What's your sense of what's going on between the Morrison government and the ABC? So the ABC is one of the most scrutinised and inquired upon institutions in Australia. Um, Just before talking to you, I tried to find out how many inquiries the ABC had faced in the last 20 years. I spoke to Matt Peacock from uh, ABC alumni. He says in the last 10 years there's been at least seven and they haven't been able to count all the um, Senate inquiries. Um, I found an article from 2013 where they said in the last five years there'd been about six or seven. This is a, a political attack on the ABC and its independence and it's the latest in a long line of political attacks from this government Labor's done it a few times too when it's been in government as well. I don't think uh, Paul Keating was the biggest fan of the ABC when he was Prime Minister. But I I think that this is an attempt to intimidate journalists ahead of an election campaign and it's, it's it's an outrageous attack on democracy. I mean, Scott Morrison has backed the call for a Senate inquiry saying that nobody should be above scrutiny, yet this is a government that's refused to bring in a, uh, a crime watchdog, an ICAC at the federal level, to scrutinise their behaviour. So they clearly believe some people should be above scrutiny. When you talk about uh, you know the importance of journalism and democracy, the shrinking presence of local news is really crucial, isn't it? So in regional uh, Australia in particular now, we're seeing a lot of local newsrooms shut down. Those jobs are lost. Those journalists lose their jobs. Aggregated news being fed out and then, you know, sort of uh, misinformation warehouses like Sky News going out on free-to-air uh, uh, networks now as a replacement for local uh, independent news, which is sourced by people who know what they're doing. It's a lot harder to hold people to account, isn't it, in those communities if there's no Body on the ground watching. What's your assessment as uh, from the MEAA from the perspective of, of the, the job losses and, and the future for those journalists, but also as a media professional, um, and what that's going to do to the body politic? 
Yeah, so we've lost thousands of um, members' jobs over the last 10 years. Many of them have been in regional, rural and suburban newspapers. I think, uh, we, fingers crossed, we hit uh, bottom in job losses maybe a year or two ago, and I think there's been a bit of an uptake uh, in jobs. But it hasn't led to the reopening of a lot of regional and um, rural newspapers. And if all politics is local, uh, being able to scrutinise that politics is, is vital. And there was a recent study a few years ago that showed that uh, I think about a third of all councils in Australia had not had a single report written on them within a five-year period. No journalists go and investigate what's happening at a local council level. Not all courts are covered locally. And that means a, a, a real diminution, a real dropping in the democratic oversight of what happens in, in regional rural Australia and at the suburban level. I think people forget the suburban newspapers as well. Uh, a lot of them have gone. So, yeah, it's it's been a real attack. And in many ways, it hasn't been a, a conscious attack on democracy. It's more the impact of the tendency of capital to accumulate. So it's cost savings, amalgamations, uh, and titles get shut down. And also, I mean, I would say this because of my job, but I, you know, I think it's also because here in Australia, we don't have robust enough competition protections, essentially. So media companies are able to buy up, you know, monopolies of different, you know, areas of the news media. And in the case of, you know, a lot of regional papers, 112 regional papers, Murdoch's News Corporation was able to buy them up um, only to shut them down or um, move them online. So, yeah, what, what's your sense on the, the conversation around media diversity at the moment, media ownership and the competition laws? So I think Australia has had one of the highest uh, concentrations of media ownership in the world for 20, 30 years. And going back to the decision of Hawke and Keating to allow News Corp to buy the Herald Sun and the Weekly Times in, in Melbourne, I think 30 or so years ago. I can't remember the exact date, sorry. And this tendency to concentrate is something that is normal within capitalism. Capitalism tends to concentrate capital, but this means that diversity of ownership is, is, is destroyed in this process. So we do need regulations that guarantee ownership is, is more diverse. We've seen nine jettison its uh, regional newspapers and they were bought up uh, by Anthony Catalano's company, uh, Australian Community Media. But that led to a number of closures in cost savings. So I think there needs to be a share of voice somehow. How you do that, given everything is on the internet, is much harder. It was much easier um, when you could easily draw a line between radio television and print. Uh, but now with convergence, our, the regulation of convergence uh, has not kept up with that. I'm not sure what the answer is, but there needs to be a, a guarantee of, of voice in, in the community. Of course, the ABC plays a vital role here, but so do many of the new entrants that have come into Australia, like The Guardian, Daily Mail may not be your choice, of uh, may not be your cup of tea, either of them, but they have come in and, and they're quite popular news outlets. The BBC is local. New York Times is now local. So the internet has allowed some diversity to come in, but it hasn't really replaced it in those key areas like 
regional, rural and suburban news coverage. Marcus, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you for your service as the president of the MEAA and I know you'll be uh, continuing to carry uh, the torch for journalism, for uh, free and fair coverage of big news events uh, in your next role within the union movement and uh, we appreciate your time being with us here on the job. Thank you, comrades. Thank you. And uh, it's been great to be here. Thanks, Francis and Sally. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. Soon to retire president of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, the MEAA, Marcus Strom, our guest on The Job today. Thanks for listening. As I said earlier, please give us a rating on uh, your favourite platform. You can follow me at St. Frankly on Twitter where I do most of my ranting and raving when I'm not doing it with you here on the podcast. And you can follow Sally at Sally Rug on the same. And of course, we will catch you on the next edition of On The Job. Bye for now. Listener.